Hey, podcast listeners, Mackenzie here. I wanted to personally thank you for listening and being a part of our community. We couldn't do this show without you. As we shape the next series of the Living Centered Podcast, I wanted to invite you specifically to help us out. We want to hear from you. We're currently in the process of curating a series all around exploring the relationships that make up our lives. Together with various experts, clinicians, and on-site alum, we'll explore the nuances, intricacies, and impact of the relationships within which we all exist. From families of origin to friendships, dating, working relationships, and beyond. We hope to host conversations with guests who bring a definitive and unique perspective. This is where you come in. We want to know your pressing relationship questions. You can submit your questions to podcast at experienceonsite.com and you might just hear an answer on our next series. Soul is a meaning-making machine. That is where we make meaning of our experiences. That's everything, right? We're going to have the experiences that we're going to have, good or bad. We're going to all suffer trauma or heartbreak, grief, loss. We're going to have really painful moments and none of us are, you know, are protected from having any of those things in the world. But being able to assign meaning and be able to, I talk a lot in the book about growing down. We all are gonna grow up whether we want to or not, but growing down, into soul and making meaning and working with the darkness and sitting in the dark night and learning not to be afraid of it, but rather to know that that's a time to alchemize your pain into purpose. And that is where the beauty is gonna come from and the wisdom. And then more importantly, you're gonna be able to share that wisdom with other people. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, today I'm so excited to introduce you to Dr. Elisa Hallerman depth psychologist and author of the new book, Soul Briety. Heal your trauma, overcome addiction, and reconnect with your soul. Hannah and I had such a powerful conversation with Dr. Elisa, all about recovery, addiction, trauma, and the pursuit of the soul. In this powerful interview, Dr. Elisa shares about her own journey towards sobriety and how after five years in recovery, she realized she might have been free from drugs and alcohol, but felt disconnected from herself, her soul, and the wellness that she really wanted. I loved this conversation and all the ways that Dr. Elisa invites us all into recovery and sobriety. So without further ado, meet our new friend, Dr. Elisa. We are so excited to be sitting down today with Dr. Elisa Hallerman, and you are a longtime friend of OnSite, but mostly I just felt like I really got to know you a little bit and reading the first couple of chapters of your book and digging into that, um, and I'm excited for our audience to get to know you. So I read in your book that you often ask your clients to just kind of tell you their story, to start at the beginning and let them in and kind of... Uh, highlight what have, what has been their story. And I'd love to just start there with you. Would you be willing uh, to give us the gift of telling a little bit of your story today? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I got sober 20 years ago. And prior to that, I think in retrospect, I definitely drank alcoholically from day one. From day one, I hated the taste of alcohol. And I just trying to get drunk and mm. I felt instantly less vulnerable, more outgoing, mm. funnier, prettier, more talkative, all the things of like more, more, more. It was just easier to be myself, whatever that was at the time. Yeah. And so that's sort of how it went. It wasn't 
a slow decline with the alcohol. It was, I was able to finish school. I was able to go to law school. And then I moved out to California and started working in the entertainment business. And something really traumatic happened. And I lost a friend to suicide. And Mm. I was 26 years old. And with any suicide, extremely unprepared, very traumatized. And I was suffering from extreme PTSD and didn't know it. And so I had all of these symptoms that were coming up. And that really fueled my addiction into drugs because I didn't know where else to turn. And that seemed like a solution and medicine at the time before it became the poison that was killing me. Cut to eight or so years later of doing all of that, I decided to get sober after another traumatic incident where I was either going to die or get it Mm. together. And I was able to ask for help, thank God, and pointed in the right direction. After my sobriety, I started to become, quote unquote, successful. And I say, quote unquote, because everyone's definition of success is different. Mine Mm -hmm. certainly has changed over the years. But back then, it was about climbing the ladder, achieving success in external things, getting more of this, having more of that, getting this title, having that office, buying that car, whatever it was at the time. And it wasn't until my fifth year of being sober when I really started to take a look and go, you know what? All this stuff and all these things and even getting there and there and there, I still feel uncomfortable. Mm. I still feel a lack of purpose and I'm not completely happy. Yeah, And that's a really hard pill to swallow, that age and that amount of sober time. And so, you know, fortunately, I'd been to a lot of meetings and I heard that this happens. So I Mm -hmm. knew that I had to go deeper and I had to do this inside work. But that felt really complicated to me. Where is this inside work? And how do you (laughs) get inside? And who would you give me the directions? Where are the directions? Where's the key? Which is the door? Like, do I have to sit in complete meditation? Like, what? how does it work? Right. Yeah. And so I started to do a lot of reading and I started to say yes to a lot of Mm -hmm. things that I normally wouldn't. And I started to go on this soul searching journey unbeknownst to me. And as I would read more and as I would meet people and I talk about the soul journey in the book and, you know, that you're going through this ordinary life of yours. And then all of a sudden you hear these whispers from soul and we all hear them, right? Those big questions that we're not ready to look at quite yet. These questions of, do I like my job? Mm. Do I love this person I'm in a relationship with? Do I want to live in this city? And you just kind of shush it away because they're too big and life's going just fine. Mm. And But inevitably, if we don't listen to those whispers, they will become louder and louder and louder until a brick house falls on your head and you (laughs) are forced to listen. But sometimes guides will appear in the form of a book, Mm. in the form of a person. And so that's what started to happen for me. And I started to take these little leap of faiths and eventually went back to school, learned about drug and alcohol counseling And further went back and got my master's and doctorate in depth psychology, focusing on trauma and neuroscience and started the company that I have today. Wow. So fascinating. Thank you for giving us that overview. I have so many questions just from that. But I think one of the things that you that stood out to me in the very beginning of your story was you were talking about the drugs and alcohol were the medicine that was working until it started poisoning you. And I think we talk a lot at Onsite about medicators and we often have like a bad view of them, but they're serving a purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And so at what point did it go from, hey, this is 
medicating me in a way that I can function to it became detrimental. And I think even you saying at the beginning, like it was it was always detrimental. But what made the shift for you um, and what was it medicating for you at the beginning? Mm-hmm. So when I started drinking, there were a couple of things going on. Initially, my grandmother, who I was extremely close with, my maternal grandmother, it's like Mm -hmm. a second mom to me, was dying. She was living in our home. She was dying of cancer. We weren't really talking about it as a family. Um, Mm -hmm. The other piece was I was getting ready to leave for college, and I had this boyfriend who was my first love, the love of my life. I didn't know how I was going to function without him. He was going to a different school, and that was really unsettling. And so the alcohol just kind of took a little bit of that anxiety, a little bit of that fear, if you will, Mm -hmm. like just kind of just brought it down a bit. In college, you look around and everyone's drinking. And so it's hard to have that barometer of, what is appropriate. And I always tell, I always tell younger people, look at why you're drinking. Like, are you having a drink because it's social? Are you having a drink because you had a bad day? Are you having a drink because you had a good day? Are you having, you know, too many drinks? Are you just drinking to get drunk? What is it that lies underneath? And so for me, that started to change. I was in a relationship that probably wasn't the most appropriate relationship for me at the time in college. And it was dysfunctional. And I was very dramatic when I drank. And I was able to, you know, do a whole host of things I wouldn't do in my quote unquote, right, sober mind. But I think that switching or adding rather the drugs, and specifically Mm -hmm. for me, cocaine, was the thing that brought me to my knees. I don't know how long I would have continued drinking if drugs hadn't gotten introduced and brought me to a place of this isn't, this isn't working. And, you know, the disease of alcoholism or drug addiction is progressive and chronic and it gets worse as you go through it. And as you get older and what started out as a little cocaine champagne, why not? or carrying it in my bag like it was gum, seemed okay, ended up in solitude, alone, Mm. isolation, by myself, in hotel rooms for 48 hours at a time. And it gets dark. And then you realize this is very unmanageable, but yet there's no way out. This is just who I am, and there's nobody coming to help and there's no solution, and I'm destined to live a life like this. And that's, hmm. that's, the, that's the really sad part. I, I, you know, I talk about in the book, no one wakes up and wants to be an alcoholic or a drug addict. Yeah. It's not something any of us strive for, and it happens so subtle over time, and, and then we hmm. don't see a way out, and it's really, it's really a scary place to be living. Thanks so much for sharing all of this. I think so much of it is so relatable um, for yeah. for everyone, whatever their current relationship with substances is. Um, but I think even just like identifying those pain points like that you've recognized about behind your wise, about your grandma, like navigating sickness and the loss of a relationship. Those are all things that we can mm-hmm. relate to. And at, at Onsite, we talk a lot about, like Mackenzie said, medicators and how a lot of times that can look like a substance like alcohol or drugs, but mm-hmm. it can look a ton of different ways. It can look as masked as people pleasing or overworking or whatever it is and, and not to compare uh, those substances because addiction is very real. And I want to acknowledge the, the chemical and the body component of all of that too. Um, but yeah. I think that that mentality of the why I think so many people don't get to for so long. And I, and I love even hearing you being able to recognize like, Hey, it was never good for me. I know from the get go, I didn't like it, but I yeah. liked how it made me feel. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'd love to explore with you a little bit. Um, so you work in, in this field and this, uh, we talk a lot about recovery in our field 
And recently we've begun to explore, which a lot of the internet has as well, but like, what does recovery have to teach us? And what does sobriety have to teach us, especially around them mm. um, for those who haven't hit rock bottom, who those who haven't come to a breaking point where they need to attend rehab or go to something like that. Mm-hmm. What, what does like getting curious about this? I know sober curious is a big phrase right now on the internet, but how can we actually get curious about the why, which I think then leads really dovetails into a lot of what you do with like the soul searching and the understanding um, your soul part of the healing process. But let can we explore that curiosity a little bit together? Yes. And, you know, being curious is essential for soul variety. Yeah. So becoming abstinent from drugs and alcohol is one is one piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people will come to me with some sort of addiction or a behavioral addiction and they'll say, you know, I'm not ready to give X, Y, and Z up, but I need mm. help. And I say, okay, but why, like, what is that serving? Like, why, why mm-hmm. are, what are we, what's underneath it? So I yeah. studied depth psychology and what depth psychology is oriented around the study of the unconscious. So soul mm-hmm. or psyche is made up of our consciousness, our unconscious, both the collective and the personal unconscious. And depth psychology is looking at what lies underneath. So sobriety is not just a lifestyle, but a modality that falls under the tradition of depth psychology. And that's D-E-P-T-H. And I was somewhere and they said, they started quoting me. Death psychology? I started saying, no, not even. That would have been a little bit more real, reasonable, <laughs> but they went to deaf, D-E-A-F psychology. Oh, and no. I was like, maybe we should start that. I don't know. Yeah. And so, while, we're, while we're spelling, you're saying soul variety, S-O-U-L. Yes. S-O-U-L variety. I'd never heard that term before. Is that something that you coined? Yes. So I coined it and I trademarked it and it came from my dissertation. So My dissertation question was, could doing soul-centered work lead to long-term recovery from addiction? Hmm. And the answer among my participants was yes, a resounding Mm -hmm. yes in a lot of ways. But the caveat was that they didn't know that they were doing it because they didn't have the language for doing soul-centered work or what any of these things meant. What does the unconscious mean? What does soul mean to you? How do you, again, get in there? What does that look like? How do we use our imagination to help cultivate and help draw out our intuition and inspiration? So I realized that what was missing in addiction and recovery Mm -hmm. And then trauma and any sort of mental health really was the idea of the why, the idea of what lies underneath. And that Mm -hmm. is unique for everybody, right? Everybody's soul is its own fingerprint and Mm -hmm. it's made up of your own personal myths, your own collective archetypes, your own complexes. And so it's very unique James Hillman talks about the acorn theory that we're all born with the same blueprint inside Mm. of us as an acorn knows exactly how to turn into a big giant oak tree. It doesn't Mm -hmm. need any instructions. It just needs to follow the innate blueprint. And we all have that too. And so if we can follow soul, if we can let soul be the guide, if we can rely on what we already know to be true, if we can connect with that, Hmm. if we can care for that, if we can work with that, then we have everything we need right here. And it's specific and unique to you. Hmm. And so that's where soul variety came from. I wanted to create a language around doing soul-centered work 
because it was so incredibly helpful in my life. I saw it working in other people's and started to do so with my clients. And then it was during the pandemic where the world turned upside down and the suffering (laughs) was immense, as you all know. And the depression and the suicidal ideation and the amount of children and therefore families that were suffering was something we had never seen before and will continue for years to come. And so I felt a little helpless that I couldn't help everyone or certainly even everyone that was coming to me. And so I felt really called to write the book and explain what sobriety is. You said that a lot of your participants um, in your dissertation didn't know that they were doing soul work. They weren't calling it that. What were some of the practices that maybe fall under uh, the umbrella of soul work? So the participants differed. So some of them spoke about dreams and Mm -hmm. having these aha moments in their dreams and really being able to work on those images that show up in dream. Interesting. Some of the participants, a lot of them talked about the ocean and Mm -hmm. whether it was surfing or otherwise. And there's something about surfing for those that have surfed that maybe don't live in Nashville um, (laughs) (laughs) that you really obviously cannot control the ocean. And we talk about that in the rooms too. You think that you can do everything, go try to stop the waves. And so there's that metaphor of when you're in the ocean and you catch a wave, you're not in control. And that feeling of being connected to something else that is, is very Mm. similar to that feeling that you get internally of being connected to something bigger than yourself that you're not in control of. And so they were able to make that sort of connection. They were able to talk about active imagination, which is taking an image that maybe comes to you, hearing that thought, visualizing it, and working in that way. And... There were lots of little ways that they were that they were doing it. They were talking about soul loss and what that felt like without being mm. able to name it. And I think that what I've learned in doing working in this field for the last 12 years is that my clients, regardless of how old they are, 14 to 80 whatever, are very smart. There's mm-hmm. the internet. They will go and learn anything. They will Google anything to try to understand what is going on for them. So yeah. the more you can explain what is going on for someone and the more you can articulate not just how the brain works through neuroscience, not just how their body's working, not just why the addiction, but really go even deeper than that Mm-hmm. That only helps people feel more in control of their own healing process, which is part of what I was looking to do. So much of so much about getting sober is about turning it over, having the willingness, mm-hmm. surrendering. And there's a piece of it that sobriety is extremely complementary and also is for anybody that wants to make a shift in their life, anyone that's hearing those whispers. So I think that's just about everybody. Yeah. Addiction happens to be one of the things that is a symptom of that. Yeah. And I think about how you began the work. You're saying you woke up at your five-year sobriety milestone and realized like, oh, I've traded some of, you know, the addiction pieces just with other things to fulfill this and you're still feeling a loss of your soul. And so I think that really relates to a lot of us that we don't need to be an active addiction to be feeling the blah, like the stuckness as I would describe it. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say that too. I loved that you pointed that out, that even when you were quote unquote successful, we see so much of that on site. Both people, um, I was just looking up a quote that Miles said once um, and he said that, 
we get to catch people on the fall and hold space for them on the rise. And mm-hmm. I think I love that um, because it's it's so true. This isn't the type of work that you just need to do on Once. when you when your life is going to shit. You know, like right. yeah. it is work that we do ongoing all the time. And sometimes right. we don't access it until the other end where, like you said, you felt really successful and you were still like, but what's missing or something's mm. not right or I still want more. And our, our mission statement on site is to design and deliver experiences that help people optimize their life and build meaning and value back into the human experience. And I love that because it's not just like, hey, we're going to come up in, in any work, whether on site or the work that you do. It's not just, hey, let's let's fix you or let's put a bandaid uh-huh. on you. It's like, how is there more for you? How can we mm-hmm. make your life meaningful and purposeful? And I love that idea of soul bright-y because I think sometimes people have a connotation of sobriety and just thinking like, yeah. just about fixing one circumstance or a set of circumstances, but that's, there's so much more of a life of meaning. And we recently had a conversation about recovery with one of our um, clinical team members, Kathleen, and she's just genius around this topic. But I, I left that conversation feeling like Kathleen Murphy. Yeah. Kathleen yes. Murphy, the best of the we best. We go way back. Oh, oh she's, she's the, the best. best. <laughs> I've learned so much around recovery with her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I left all of my conversations around recovery with her. Yeah. I leave feeling like almost envious, like, oh, I want to tap into that. And she said, like, that much she doesn't have the luxury of not living a life right. of recovery, yes. you know? And That's like, right. I think sometimes for us of us that aren't in uh, um, or haven't been in an active addiction that needs the label of help that we think required, um, we don't tap into that. And so I love the idea of like, how do we all do this soul type of work to access that life of more, to access that recovered lifestyle, mm-hmm. that soul lifestyle? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you brought up meaning and purpose and Mm -hmm. soul is a meaning making machine. Right. Yeah. That is where we make meaning of our experiences. And so that's everything, right? We're going Mm. to have the experiences that we're going to have, good or bad. We're going to all suffer trauma or heartbreak, grief, loss. Yeah. We're going to have really painful moments and those things are not where none of us are, you know, are protected from having any of those things in the world, but being able to assign meaning Hmm. and Hmm. be able to, I talk a lot in the book about growing down. We all Hmm. are going to grow up whether we want to or not, but growing down into soul and Mm. making meaning and working with the darkness and sitting in the dark night and learning not to be afraid of it, but rather to know that that's a time to alchemize your pain into purpose. And Mm. that is where the beauty is going to come from and the wisdom. And then more importantly, you're going to be able to share that wisdom with other people And isn't Mm. that the ultimate form of connection, first to yourself Mm. and then to others? Hey there. If this conversation has you thinking about the ways that your past is interfering and taking over your present, I want to remind you about Onsite's residential trauma experience, Milestones. When life is too much, Milestones offers a refuge and a place of healing. Through this one-of-a-kind holistic experience, clients find time to focus completely on their healing and restoration on our beautiful 250-acre campus that is world-renowned for its healing hospitality. Our innovative experience and integrative program offers a variable length of stay from 30 to 90 days and is specific to individualized needs. Every aspect of the experience is grounded in cutting-edge, trauma-informed care and catered to meet the needs of our guests. If you or someone you love might benefit from Milestones, our admissions team would love to connect with you at 1-800-341-7432. You can also learn more and get an inside look at the Milestones experience by listening to our limited series podcast, Treating Trauma. Head to treatingtraumapodcast.com to listen today. 
I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that, because even when you say making meaning of this hard experience, I think there is a part of me who has had a tendency for a lot of my own journey to be dismissive of my pain or to constantly find like, what was the silver lining of this? Like, I need to make it, Mm. you know, I needed to have a purpose. And so how do you make meaning of something without being dismissive of it or trying to whitewash the pain to uh, not let it matter, try to get through it and not actually feel it? You were saying that process of sitting in the dark with it um, in a way that is healthy and healing and not dismissive. Does that make sense? Yes. And I'm so glad that you phrased it that way because I want to be really clear. We're not looking to make meaning of what happened, right? Mm, Some things are enormously tragic. Mm. They don't make any sense. Yeah. They don't make any sense. They're not supposed to happen. And we're not going to find meaning in that or a silver lining. What we are going to find meaning in when something traumatic happens or we experience that sort of dissociation, if you will, Mm -hmm. or we're broken into a million pieces where we feel fragmented, where you feel that sense of grief or loss of a piece of me is missing, people will say, Mm -hmm. right? If you can sit in that as you put yourself back together and we use alchemy as a metaphor, that's where the meaning in your life comes from. Not the tragedy, not the soul loss moment, But in putting the pieces of yourself back together and transforming yourself into something different. I didn't know it at the time, but when I got sober, right, I had obviously was suffering from a lot of trauma. And I was so disconnected from the essence of my soul self and so fractured wearing all these different masks and showing up certain ways. And one of them I talk about in the book was the mask of my addiction. And I called her Trixie. I learned very quickly in sobriety that I had um, a thinking disease that even Mm. though I wasn't going to be using drugs and alcohol, my brain still thought a certain way. And Hmm. that didn't really sit with me. I wanted to become Elisa again. I wanted to strive for something else, but I had no idea who Elisa was or what she liked or how to dress or how to show up at a dinner party or anything Hmm. about Elisa. Because I had been wearing the mask of Trixie for so long. And Trixie was a lunatic and manipulative and a liar. And Mm. it wasn't until I, so I was able to separate those in early sobriety and call my disease Trixie and work on formulating who Elisa was. And it wasn't until I went back to school and learned about personification and really taking these masks, these images and giving them autonomy, giving them Mm. names with their own emotions and their own feelings and their own set of circumstances. And Trixie became an ally for me, not just something over here that she became a welcome participant in my life. Not that she ever got to drive the car, but she gets to share and I need to listen. And there's others I talk about. But making meaning of something traumatic that's happened, a breakup, a heartbreak, the loss of a loved one, Mm -hmm. you're never going to find the silver lining in the actual moment. Because it's tragic for not just you, for a lot of people. And, but the healing process for you and that pain being alchemized into purpose, that's the gift. That's the gift. And that part is hard to do. 
So, you know, being able to sit in that dark night voluntarily and visit, I talk about the image of a cave for me where I go. So instead of being forced down there when something happens and then it's really super scary, I'm able to go down there now and sort of work on things. I'm able to go down to that imagery that I've created in that cave and work on things when I want to. So when I'm forced down there in life, under life circumstances that will happen, it's not as scary. I've lit some candles. Mm. I know what to expect. It's not as dark. Yeah, you've, you've kind of taken some autonomy back in that. You've mentioned the word, the word soul loss a couple of different times. And I wonder, um, is there a difference between traumatic experiences and experiences that may cause soul loss in your mind? Or are they kind of one and the same? Well, trauma is one of those words, as you know, where everyone will assign a different meaning to it. Definitely. So let's just get clear on what we mean when we say trauma. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? Let's, let's just get clear about it. So trauma is subjective in what's happening for that person is something yeah. that takes them out of their own window of tolerance. So throughout the day, we're going to have moments where we get a little elevated and then come right back down and feel regulated. So for instance, mm -hmm. you're walking your dog, you see a garden hose peeking out of the bush, you automatically think snake and you like jump and then very quickly your body goes, oh no, 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 that's just a, that's just a hose and you re self-regulate yeah. and you move on and it doesn't affect the mm -hmm. rest of your day. So when something traumatic happens, whether it's an acute incident, one-time event, or chronic that's going on for a period of time, bullying at school, a divorce, something of that sort, working mm -hmm. for a narcissistic boss, yeah, something that's ongoing, or complex, a marriage of the two, you are going outside of that window of tolerance. It's taking you to a place where that information is not integrating into okay. your memory in the same way. Sometimes it feels like when you're in an accident, God forbid, you're, it's happening in slow motion. Or when something traumatic happens, people are frozen in, uh, what do you mean? What do you mean? What are you saying? What are you saying? I don't understand. I don't understand, right? And that's mm. because we can't comprehend it. It is too overwhelming that our brains cannot understand what is happening. Gotcha. So that's what happens in our brains. But what happens in here, in our hearts and in our soul, mm. is that we break into pieces. Yeah. And we become a bit of a fragmented self. And yeah. we lose connection to who we are and we lose the ability to connect with others because of it. And so that to me is more of the definition of soul loss. And it can happen not just with something traumatic, but with toxic stress, with heartbreak, mm -hmm. all of those different things. Thank you for clearing that up. It makes me think of, um, we talked about Kathleen Murphy, who we all mm -hmm. love. Uh, she often defines it of like, trauma is not what happened to you. It's what's continuing to happen to you yes. in your nervous system. And even, I mean, she uses the analogy sometimes to say like, when someone says something hurtful to you, where do you feel that pain? And automatically everyone goes to their heart. heart. And so when you did that, when you said in here in my soul and you grabbed your heart, that's what it made me think of is that it disconnects us from what makes us human. Yeah. We lose the ability to connect to that meaning-making machine I was talking about. And people mm. will say, nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense in my life anymore. I can't find any joy. A piece of me is missing. I love that. I feel like this ties into like the how you were referring to your cave and going into it. And it's not as scary anymore because you've lit candles and you've gone in it before. Or maybe you bring a friend or whatever it is. And that stuff didn't happen mm. overnight. It wasn't like you just decided my, my cave is lit and it's cozy now. <laughs> like that takes a lot of time and intention. Yeah. Um, and I know that can maybe seem daunting to people. They're like, oh, how do I begin this soul 
sobriety journey. And I think a lot of times we wait, and I, I'm so grateful this is changing and a lot of narratives around therapy is changing and mental health is changing where people are prioritizing it like they would their physical health. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. how, what would kind of be your encouragement to people or how would you, what would be your advice to people that want to to begin to light candles in their cave that want to begin the sobriety journey. Um, and maybe that feels intangible or they don't know what that would look like, or maybe they don't have a ton of extra money or resources to invest in a lot of professional help right now. Like what would be some steps people could take to engage in their sobriety journey? Great question. So the beautiful thing about doing sobriety is you can do it yourself. I am, We have started to create community around it. And that is my biggest wish that that will continue to grow and grow so that people can talk about their sobriety journeys with one another in real time. But the book talks about, so the book is told in story because that is how soul speaks. Soul speaks in story, Mm -hmm. in metaphor, in image, in poetry, And so the best way to explain my soul journey and the journey of some of my clients, obviously not real clients, is told in story with teachings in between. But at the end, I talk about where you are and knowing where you are on this 12-step soul journey. And Mm. so the first step being... Are you just walking through your ordinary life? Are you just at a place where you're like, yeah, everything's good. You know, I, I go to work, I come home, I feed the kids, I put on Netflix or I, whatever it is. Right. And it's like, but I want a little bit more. I'm looking for a little something extra. You could be there. Are you starting to hear the whispers, those really big questions? And have you been shushing them for a while? Are you ready to start maybe looking at one of them or just listening to it and want a little help with that? Have you been turning away too long, the third step, where Mm. you, the whispers are getting louder and louder and louder? Step five, are you ready to jump and get curious about something and start to pull that thread and learn a little bit more? Have you taken your leap of faith And you're at step six, and I call it step six, lions and tigers and bears. Because once you take Uh that leap of faith, lions and tigers and bears will show up. Right, right. Yeah. It is not going to be smooth sailing, people. Mm -hmm. Things are going to happen. You will hit some brick walls. You will go over some speed bumps. But just know that's temporary. That's what's supposed to happen. It's a bit of a struggle, Mm -hmm. right? You're going to make some life changes and it's a bit of a struggle. And eventually you're going to get to the threshold. You're going to get to seven. You're going to get to that threshold and you're going to feel like this is it. This is the moment of truth I've been waiting for. And then you will be met with, you don't have the key yet. (laughs) You must Mm -hmm. pause. You're not quite ready. You have. You've done a tremendous amount of work. Not quite ready to share it with others yet. And then you will ultimately experience one more thing. And that is the thing that might lead you to the cave. That is the moment where you can go, okay, I need a little bit more time with this. I didn't think about this Mm -hmm. side of it. I was only thinking about the good and the perfect and the this and the that and the success and the light. But I didn't factor in a little Mm. bit of this darkness or this a little bit more growth that I need. And then that's your alchemizing phase. And step 10 is your is your enlightenment where you really Mm. have now conquered this ultimate challenge. And step 12 being you're ready to share your wisdom with the world. Mm. I think we try to jump to 12. Like in that journey, I think I found that in my own story of like, okay, everything's good. And I want to then bring in more people and share this before I've taken that pause and that time. And so that's like what, seven, seven or eight. I think that's such a, an interesting pause right in the middle of it to say, hey, you're not actually like across the finish line you thought you were or whatever. That's so interesting. I mean, it came up a lot for me when I was writing the book 
share from my scars, not from my wounds. Mm. Yeah. And sharing from your scars is sharing from things that are healed in in its entirety. Yeah. Your wounds, not so much. You haven't really gone through enough of the alchemizing phase to be able to share that in a way that you're not shading it a little bit with your own darkness. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's important to clarify, like in context, you should share with somebody that darkness and like find support, find what you need. But Mm -hmm. yeah, the like leading others through this too, that, that place of coming from wounding or coming from healing and knowing full well that healing is ever ongoing and we never fully arrive to whatever, but we, I, I love that idea. I think so many of us try to, yeah, skip that because it's un- uncomfortable. We want to eject. We want to say like, I'm better now. Yeah. Um, and so how to, yeah, find the support you need in that. So much of this work comes from mythology, from storytelling. We talk mm-hmm. about the wounded healer. That's essentially yeah. the essence of the wounded healer. That's sort of the premise of the soul journey is where are you? Where are you on the soul journey? So that you can identify and not be so scared of what's going to happen next. Because you know where you are and what's about to come. Yeah, it's a normalizing. And the more you can name it, as you were saying, and put words to it, mm-hmm. it helps us not feel so alone and have some some agency. That's Hannah's favorite word is agency. Yes. I do love it. Yes. I Sobriety it. gives you back agency for sure. Yeah, I love that. I I struggle a lot with control. And I think a lot of times what leads us to addiction and other things, the opposite of sobriety is control. And so I love that mm-hmm. the flip side of what does living from a soul place or doing soul work. And I do think that's agency. And I think people can confuse those too. But really, the, yeah. the it goes back to what we started with in the beginning with like the why and mm-hmm. the me underneath, the story underneath, like all of that. I think what's important in early recovery and just in doing work in general is, yes, it gives you back agency. And yes, your acorn, only you are going to know the messages. Only you are going to hear them through sensation and intuition and body. And just like you walk into a room and you get a good vibe or a bad vibe, that's soul, right? right? But what also helps, in what I tell a lot of my clients and what I have is a board of directors that Mm, I get to run my ideas by. Cause sometimes, you know, they're half baked or they're impulsive. Right. So at the end of the day, it's going to be my choice, but it's not bad to run big ticket items by your board of directors. Right. I love that. I have a friend who has a personal board of directors and it's, it's been something I've been stewing on for myself because we think yeah. like, oh, well, I don't, I'm not running a business or I'm not doing whatever. Why would I need that? But to have the like, who do I actually let speak into mm-hmm. my life and whose opinions do I know will speak truly and honestly and authentically to me? Well, you're not running a business, but isn't this more important? I mean, much more important. Yeah. You're running your uh-huh. life, girl. Exactly. I know. I love it. I've been thinking through that in my own life of who who's on my board and who do I let speak into that. You're running a big, beautiful life. Mm -hmm. You can Mm -hmm. fire board members and hire new ones. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, well, it makes whether me we nervous. choose it or not, we all have them and we let people exactly. speak into our lives. And I think a lot of times we've recently done a, Mackenzie and I recently done an exercise where we kind of identified who we want to speak into our lives and to our leadership. And it was mm-hmm. shocking because I was like, oh, I had to grieve. Like some people I thought would be on that board right. aren't on that board. And like, oh, someone that was on that board in this last season doesn't get to come into it in the next season. And that's sad. Or that's different than I thought Mm -hmm. it would look like. And so, yeah, I love that if we have them, whether we know it or not. And so let's get intentional about that for ourselves. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And inviting them in. So I think what I keep taking away from this whole conversation and every conversation we have about recovery is just the ongoing nature of it. Mm. Um, that it is a recovery journey, that it's a process, that it is taking a step on a road that continues, right? Um, And so I wonder, what are some of the practices that help you stay centered and kind of that have been really great practices on your recovery journey? For me, it's been 
really staying in touch with others that understand mm. the journey. Yeah. So that's good. I have a group of women that we meet every Monday night and we're all on a sobriety journey. Mm. And these are six of my most intimate soul-centered relationships that I have. And mm. I can be completely myself, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and yeah. that time with these women. And I think that's really important to have a community. I also think it's really important. I think something I've learned through this birthing of this book and getting it out mm-hmm. was I knew I had to take time to sit in the darkness. It's something I teach and something the book talks about a lot. But what's occurred to me, and I'll be adding this to the repertoire, (laughs) is you also need to sit, be able to sit comfortably in the light. And sometimes we dim our lights, right, Mm -hmm. ladies? We dim our lights because we've been told to, or we don't want to make people uncomfortable, or we don't want to seem too much, or we don't Mm -hmm. want to be the center of attention, and we don't get to sit in the light that we worked so hard to get to. Yeah. And I found myself this last week recognizing this discomfort And all of a sudden having this realization last night with my ladies of like, wait a minute, Hmm. I think I'm uncomfortable in the light now. (laughs) (laughs) It's more comfortable in the dark. That makes sense. Sometimes it is, right? That's more comfortable. We've Mm -hmm. been there more. Yeah. So I'm working on being comfortable in the light as well. I think both are equally as important. You can't Mm -hmm. have one without the other. And... Just really staying true to what you need. There's a big difference between being selfish and selfless. And there's also a big difference between secrecy and privacy. And it's Mm. okay to have a personal life. And it's okay to keep things close to the vest or close to your heart or with only the people that you love. You don't have to be a complete open book and as we go into the holidays and we're talking about not drinking or not using or being Mm -hmm. with family you really want to be mindful of like what's what's privacy what are the boundaries around your own privacy I've been thinking about that a lot Mm. that's so good the distinction between secret and private and I think we get that mixed up, especially people on the journey. I know that I have done that of if I'm letting people in, then I need to let everyone in. Right. Um, but it's, again, getting really clear about who's that board of director and who are the safe voices that I'm inviting in. Not everyone gets to have access. That's right. That right there, I think, could be a whole podcast. So All right. I want to ask more questions about it. Meet up another day. Yeah, we'll <laughs> Winding down. Perfect. Oh. This has been so good, and I'm so grateful um, that you're getting this book out into the world, Sobriety, and we are just so grateful for you and yeah. your relationship with Onsite and your partnership and wishing you all the good things as you continue to get this into people's hands and walk them through this journey. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me. It was totally amazing talking to all of you lovely ladies. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.